ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕೋಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಂ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ Vedanta tells us that if we know ourselves as we truly are, we would be freed from all suffering. Right now, here itself, in this very life. Why would that be? Because according to Vedanta, we are none other than infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. Sat, Chit, Ananda. So if we realize that we are Sat, Chit, Ananda, then that itself is liberation liberation from suffering and attainment of bliss so that is the purpose of vedanta now immediately one can see the what the problem is the problem is we do not think of ourselves as sachidananda far from it we are quite convinced that we know who we are the biggest block the biggest obstacle to enlightenment is that we already think we know who we are we think it's the most obvious thing in the world here i am here's this person what do you mean by this person well we first of all we mean the body and within the body we mean the mind our identity our personality our thoughts likes and dislikes knowledge our personal history so this combination is what we think we are this is the chief obstacle to enlightenment and hence the first step in vedanta must be to show us that we are not this body mind complex do you see the chain of reasoning if we are truly existence consciousness bliss then in order to realize that we must first overcome this unquestioned conviction that we are this body and mind we must first see realize experience that we are not the body that we are not the mind in fact in ashtavakra gita it is said yadi deham prithakritya chiti vishramya tishtasi adhunaiva sukhi shanta bandha mukto bhavishyasi if you can see yourself as separate realize yourself as separate from the body mind complex and rest in pure consciousness rest in pure consciousness which you are chiti vishramya tishtasi remain as pure consciousness which you are if you could do that adunaiva right now you would be free from all bondage of suffering and you would be peaceful serene joyful right now right here in this very body in this very life there's no gap between this realization and freedom so this is the thing we must see that we are not the body mind body mind complex and so till now what we have been doing till now shankaracharya has deployed a formidable array of arguments to show that we are not the body mind we are not the body mind complex now mostly these arguments have been first of all to take the physical body what is called the gross body the physical body 
and show that we are not this physical body. And you know, we went through so many arguments, so many of these things over the last uh, several weeks. Remember, these arguments are not just for intellectual conviction. They are not only meant to persuade us, like a lawyer persuades you of the truth. So there are a battery of arguments to persuade us, at least at first create a doubt in us. Oh, so am I really the body? I never questioned it. We start questioning. And then after that, you actually begin to see, you begin to understand. We begin to understand that I am not the body. But not only this, not only this intellectual understanding, these arguments are a form of higher reason where they are, they point out something to us. Not just understand it, see it as a fact. You see that this shawl is different from the body. You can explain it to me with some arguments. I can understand it, which is good, but I also clearly see that it's different. In the same way, we must see that we are not the body. So these arguments are meant not only for, uh, you know, uh, philosophically showing us that we are not the body, but actually, these are what are called pointing out instructions. They're pointing out something to us. Now, this is what we have done so far. Most of these arguments apply both to the physical body and to the subtle body, the mind. They apply both to the physical body and to the mind also. But at this point, right now, we are coming to a crucial verse, verse number 39. This word, verse number 39 is crucial. I remember last time I stopped at 38 because I want to devote one entire class to this verse, 39. It's a power-packed verse. What has, what's going to be done here in 39? It is in this verse that Shankaracharya specifically concentrates on the mind. Not, no longer the physical body. On the mind. Our thoughts, our ideas, our personality. Now the focus, the searchlight is trained upon the mind. You see, seeing ourselves or feeling ourselves to be different from the body is not all that difficult. Here is the body. And I can clearly feel that I am something maybe within the body, maybe an embodied entity, but not quite a mass of flesh and blood and bones. I seem to be a sentient entity somehow related to the body. We can directly feel it without any philosophy, right now. In fact, most people do not think of themselves as bodies. They think of themselves as embodied minds. Isn't it so? Most educated adult people and persons, we think of ourselves as edu as embodied minds, minds like software and hardware, mindset somehow connected to this physical body. That's how we feel. We understand ourselves like that and we feel that. That's what we are, embodied minds. Now, we are striking at this very subtle point. It's extremely vital to see ourselves as separate from the mind. That's what's going to happen in this 39th verse. Very crucial. And here Shankaracharya wants to convince us, first make us doubt that we, whether we are really the mind, and then actually show us, clearly show us that we are not the mind. It can be a breathtaking discovery. It's a very powerful breathtaking discovery that I am not the mind. And it can be scary and it can be very liberating. It can be enormously liberating. 
Remember, when we say that we are not the mind, before we go into this, I am not going to make the mind disappear. Don't be afraid. You're not going to lose the mind. The mind will still be there and you can use the mind. To know that you are different from the car doesn't mean the car gets stored away. The car is still there and you can rise, use the car, you can, you can drive the car, but you are free of the car. You, you are not tied to it anymore. In the same way, when you are free of the mind, the mind begins to behave for the first time in our lives maybe. The tyranny of the mind is at an end. You get an enormous sense of freedom and lightness. And the freedom and lightness will go away also. The moment you step outside, it will go away. The mind will come dancing back. Sri Ramakrishna used to give this beautiful example. In the village ponds in Bengal, there's a kind of water plant which covers the surface of the plant, uh, of, the, of the water, of the pond. So it's a green surface you will see. It's a kind of water scum. Now, if you put your hands there and you push it aside, you will see clear, sparkling water below. So you can see the water there. You let it go, it will come dancing back and cover it up again. In the same way, what Shankaracharya is going to do is clean, clear, push the scum of the mind, the covering of the mind aside and reveal to yourselves, you yourself, pure consciousness apart from the mind. And just like those water plants, the it will come mind will come dancing back again. That's also guaranteed. After this class is over, it, it will cover up the pure consciousness, the clear water again. But we will know for the first time, we will actually, the fortunate few among us, we will actually see it also. It's true. That I am something quite apart from the mind. So that's what we are going to do here. Listen to these arguments which Shankaracharya will give. And more than listening, understand what he is trying to see. And look at the logic, the philosophically, the inquiry is being done. Understand the logic. And even more important than understanding, even more important than listening and understanding, see it to be true. Yes, it is. Give a tick mark. It's true. Now, Shankaracharya is going to, in this verse, as I said, it's a power-packed verse. Shankaracharya is going to give us no less than, say, seven arguments in one verse. It should actually be seven verses, but he has given us seven arguments packed in one verse. So we shall quickly run through them and then see where we are. Removing, remember the objective is removing the, the plants covering the, the surface of the lake. So let's go into this journey. 39. Lingam chaneka sanyuktam Lingam chaneka sanyuktam Chalam drisham vikaricha Chalam drisham vikaricha Avyapakam asadrupam Avyapakam asadrupam Tatkatham syat pumanayam what it means is, you, how can you be the subtle body? Why not? Because of these seven reasons. One by one. Now, first of all, what is the subtle body? Gross body, physical body, here. You can see it. Subtle body, 
subtle body is whatever lies within this physical body. In Vedanta, um, the subtle body is classified in this way. If we look on inside ourselves, we will find the subtle body with 17 parts. No less 17 parts. And uh, what are these 17 parts? None of them are anything mystical, uh, theoretical, philosophical. Absolutely clear. Each of them you can experience just now. When I, when I tell you, you can experience it. What are the 17 parts? First is the, um, the mi mind. And then they will say the intellect, buddhi. And manas, buddhi. Then the uh, five organs of perception, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin. So five senses of perception. These are also part of the subtle body, these are subtle powers. And the five organs of action, like walking and catching and speaking. So five organs of action are there. Now how many does that make? Twelve. And the five breaths, um, actually our breathing, the power, the, what is called prana. So there are five activities, prana, apana, vyana, udana, samana. Those who do the ritual puja, you know, you do pranaya, swaha, apanaya, swaha, vyanaya, so and so on. So the five powers of the prana, we're not going into the details. Each one has a specific activity. But basically all they do is they sustain life. They do things like breathing in and breathing out. They do things like assimilating food, converting the food and drink we eat into this physical body, circulating blood all over the body and things like that. So prana, the five pranas, the five sense organs, the five motor organs, mind and intellect, 17. Another classification is mind, intellect, Ego and memory. Mana buddhi jitta hankara. In that case, the number goes up to 19. But whether 17 or 19, altogether, this is called the subtle body. In death, what happens in death? The physical body dies. Then it is buried or burnt or whatever. But the subtle body transmigrates. It goes to other worlds and other bodies. This is the idea of reincarnation, rebirths. So this is the subtle body. It is in fact what we consider ourselves to be. The mind is one aspect of it. So our personality, our memories, our ego, even the person who is saying I, that's also part of the mind, the antakkarana. So this thing, this subtle body, now the object is to see that we are not this subtle body. First argument. The first argument is anekam. This subtle body has so many parts. The subtle body has so many parts. It's divided into 17 parts or in another classification, 19 parts. The five powers of the, of the prana, the five uh, motor organs, five sense organs, the mind, the intellect and the ego and the memory if you count two more. So 17 parts or 19 parts, it's divided into so many parts. This variegated, multifaceted system Compared to that, what do you feel yourself to be? Are you divided into many parts or are you one? Are you an individual? Or are you something like a multiple personality disorder? They say, you know, like many persons in a bundle. No. If we perceive ourselves to have many parts, if we look carefully, the parts will either belong to the physical body 
here are my hands and my feet and my belly and my head. Or they will belong to the subtle body. Here is the breath, here is the power of seeing, here is the power of hearing, here is the mind, here is the memory. These parts all belong to the subtle body. I myself, apart from these parts, I don't seem to be divided. I seem to be one. So I, the self, am one. The subtle body is divided into 17 parts. How can the one and 17 be one and the same thing? How can that which is one and one is divided into 17 parts, how can they be, how can ekam and anekam be one and the same thing? It cannot be. That which is fractured, divided into 17 systems, subsystems, a very sophisticated machine. If the physical body is a sophisticated machine, the subtle body is an enormously more sophisticated machine. But I who shine within this physical body and subtle body, I don't seem to have parts. I clearly feel I am one being. So this one being, not divided into parts internally, and this subtle body, which is so clearly divided into different systems. The system, just right now, the system you are seeing and hearing, you're hearing my words, two clearly different systems. And you, the one who is using these systems, you don't seem to be divided into two. You seem to be the operator of the system of seeing and the system of hearing. So one and many, first argument. Listen, think, simple argument. You say, yep. Yeah. That's true. And see whether it is true. Like the shawl and my body. Clearly different. Can you see the subtle body? The breath is something that's different from you. The thinking. The understanding even. The memory. Clearly it's a system. They're different from me. The multifaceted system. I am one. Ekam anekam. Number one. Second. Chalam. Chalam means... Moving. Now there are two explanations of this. One given by Vidyaranya in his commentary to this book. He says one uh, meaning of chalam could be the mind is fickle, it moves, it changes continuously. And you are the unchanging observer of the changing mind. So that which is unchanging and that which is continuously changing, how can they be the same? This is one meaning, but the other meaning is the understanding in Hinduism and also Buddhism and other systems is that this subtle body moves from body to body. It transmigrates. You, the pure consciousness, you do not transmigrate. You do not go from birth to birth. You are always one and the same. So what goes from birth to birth is a subtle body. Sukshma Sharira. That's the meaning of Chalam. So there are two ways of understanding. In both cases, I am not the one who is moving the mind is moving. This funny Zen story I had read. Um, Zen monks are sitting, meditating. Younger one, middle-aged one, senior one. And the younger one sees the flag moving on top of the monastery. And he says, look, look, the flag is moving. The more senior one smiles wisely. Boy, what does he understand? Flag is not moving, really the wind is moving. You should understand, look deeper. The more senior one who was meditating, he smiled and said, not even the wind, the mind is moving. That's what you should understand. Oh, I see, such wise thing. And the senior most monk, who was upstairs in the monastery taking rest, he looked out of the window, 
His tongues are moving too much. <laughs> too much talking going on. <laughs> so, moving. The mind changes. We are the unchanging observer. Or the mind transmigrates. Why the two meanings are given will become clear later, later on. So that which is unmoving or unchanging cannot be that which is moving. So chalam achalam in Sanskrit. I am the unmoved observer of the, of the moving mind, changing mind. Third one is a powerful reason. We have come across this earlier. Drishyam. The mind, the subtle body, the mind is an object of awareness. We are clearly, oh so clearly aware. Are we not aware of the breath? Just not, just see, it's a fact. You don't even have to understand, you don't have to argue for it, just your attention is to be drawn to it. We are aware of the breath. There's a whole mindfulness meditation being aware of the breath. If you're not aware of the breath, the whole mindfulness meditation fails. Yes, you have to become aware of the breath, but what Vedanta says is, if you are aware of the breath, breathing, you're aware of it, breathing in and out, who is aware? You cannot be the breath. The breath is not aware of itself. Who is aware of the breath? You are the knower, the breath is the known. You are the observer, the breath is the observed. Drishyam. It's an object. Just like the breath, you see the other parts of the subtle body? Mind. Thoughts come and go. We are the observer. Do we not, do, are we not aware? The moment we concentrate inside, we are aware of thoughts coming and going. Memory. All of us to have this experience. We're trying to remember. That trying to remember is memory in action. Who is trying to remember? You remember something. Ah, I remembered it. So the remembering itself is memory. But who is remembering? That must be separate from the memory. Or sometimes I tried to remember, I forgot. I can't remember. It's not coming to my mind. This success and failure of memory, remembering and forgetting. Who is the one watching? To whom does it occur? This memory, success and failure of memory? It can't be the memory. It must be something apart from the memory. So in this way, drishyam. The memory, the whole subtle body, mind, memory, ego, thoughts, uh, the intellect, breathing, the senses, watching something, hearing something, all of them are objects. They are systems which are sophisticated, very sophisticated, Systems which are functioning, subtle systems, but all of them are observed, they are watched, they are illumined by you. This is the argument. You cannot be the subtle body. The observer and the observed cannot be the same thing. The subject and the object cannot be the same thing. The seer and the seen cannot be the same thing. This is a really powerful argument. Not only is it powerful as an argument, it works very well in spiritual practice. The moment you try to feel that, you can clearly see yourself as the, as the observer. And all these systems, mind and breath and all, as observed. Drishyam. Third, third point. Vikari. Here is why the word chalam was interpreted in two ways. Vikari means subject to change. Everything in the subtle body changes continuously. I was running hard, coming to the class to get in in time, breathing fast. I am the observer of the fast breathing. I sit down, listen to the class and slowly breathing becomes gentle, rhythmic. 
I am the unchanged observer of the rhythmic breathing now. The breathing changed, changed, and I, I observed. I see the change in the breathing. I open my eyes and see. I close my eyes and do not see. Who is the unchanged observer of the seeing and the not seeing? You can try it right now. I'm seeing. Close your eyes. Not seeing. Who is the one who observed the seeing and the not seeing? That cannot be the eyes. It changes. The unchanged observer of the changing subsystems of the subtle body. I'll repeat that for you. The unchanged observer of the changing subsystems of the subtle body. It must be something apart from the subtle body. Vikari. You are nirvikara. Sanskrit, nirvikara. This is vikari. Another meaning of vikari is given by Vidyarnya Swami. Upachaya. That sometimes the subtle body develops, grows strong. You are alert. You are healthy. You are um, uh, functioning at peak efficiency. You, are at, you say you are in, they say athletes, you know, they say we are in, in form. We are in form. Uh, you are doing well. Sometimes we feel, I'm sick, I'm tired, I'm drowsy. So, it, the subtle body functions at peak efficiency, sometimes it does not function at peak efficiency. It, it, it um, sort of, you know, um, it draws down, it, it, it sort of dwindles down in power. It's subject to increase and decrease. The observer of both the increase and the decrease is not increasing or decreasing. You are. You note the the energy and the alertness of the subtle body. You know, note the lack of energy, the tiredness, and the dullness of the subtle body. You are the same. So vikari nirvikara. You can understand in that sense also. Fourth argument. Fifth, avyapakam, non-pervasive. You exist without the subtle body also. There are times when you are there and the subtle body is not there. How can you be the subtle body? When is this? When, give, me, give me an example. Deep sleep is an example. Yes. In deep sleep, the mind shuts down. You are not aware of the breathing. Remember, I am speaking about it from your point of view. And when I say in deep sleep, the body is not there, the mind is not there, the breath is not there. It doesn't mean that you are choking to death or something or the body has disappeared. That's from an objective point of view, but from your own personal experience, the person who's sleeping, the person who's sleeping is experiencing a blankness, a nothingness, darkness. There is no mind which is experienced there. There is no breathing which is experienced there. Subtle body is not, physical body is not experienced, subtle body is not experienced. Now, in all our experience, most of the time the subtle body is with me. I am aware of breathing, I am aware of thinking, of feeling, remembering, trying to understand. All these things, it's going on all the time. The mind is always with me, day and night. But in deep sleep, the mind is not with me. Yet I am there. And there are many ways of proving it. A simple way is this. If you were not there, who slept? Who slept? What slept? So... I am the one who experienced the blankness, the absence of this functioning of the subtle body. And when I wake up or I start dreaming, I experience the functioning of the subtle body. So both the absence and the presence of the functioning of the subtle body is experienced by me. I am of greater pervasion than the 
subtle body. Subtle body of, is of less, lesser pervasion. This is also an interesting argument. It shows that I can exist without the subtle body in my own experience, first person experience, remember. So, Abhyapakam. Then the sixth argument, this is a deeply philosophical argument, Asadrupam. The subtle body they are saying is false, it's an appearance. You, the consciousness, are the reality. Now, this has to be understood clearly. What is the definition of falsity? The false, something is defined in Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta to be false if it has no existence of its own, if its existence is entirely drawn from something else. Here is this table. If I tell you the table is false, you laugh. Swami, what's holding up your book and your glass and the, and the microphone if the table is false? What, I'm, what Advaita Vedanta would mean by the table being an appearance or false is they mean the wood is the reality. To answer your question, what is holding up the glass or the book or the microphone? The wood is holding it up. There is no separate thing called the table. I'm not denying the table is here, but what I'm saying is the table has no existence apart from the wood. So that is the definition of falsity in Advaita Vedanta, which does not have real, separate, independent existence of its own. Now, I will not argue deeply this, but it's a powerful point, a very deeply philosophical point. I'll just put it out there before you. The mind has no existence of its own apart from the knowing, witnessing consciousness. Think about it. Whenever you experience anything in the mind, 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. 2 plus 2 is equal to 4 is a vritti, a movement of the mind. It is shining in your consciousness. Without the consciousness, that vritti would not be cognized at all. Would not be known at all. You could not have any experience of 2 plus 2 is 4 without consciousness. Without consciousness, no seeing is possible, no hearing is possible, no speaking is possible, no conscious action is possible without consciousness. It's a tautology, it's, it's built into the very system. Without consciousness, subtle body has no existence. Without the Atman, without you, the witnessing consciousness, the subtle body has no independent existence of its own. Just like a wave has no existence apart from the water, an ornament has no existence apart from the gold, this table has no existence apart from the material which is the wood. In the same way, the mind has no existence apart from consciousness. You are that consciousness. The mind is something that depends on you for existence. You don't depend on mind for existence. You see, this is the tragedy. We think we are the mind. Without the mind, we are gone. Without the mind, I'm a vegetable. You see, those who are brain dead, they're like vegetables. No, no, no. Consciousness remains as such. With the brain does not function, the mind does not function, and so the person is not able to think or communicate with us. But the person remains as such. I met a very inter interesting person recently. He's a, a shaman of the Native American Indian tradition. And uh, he told me several experiences with patients in coma. And he told me about this uh, helicopter pilot who had a terrible accident and uh, it was in coma. All his uh, mates died and he was somehow rescued but he was 
clinically dead by the time they pulled him out. And they operated upon him, massaged his heart, um, they drained the blood and warmed the blood or something like this. Some very drastic things were performed. And so the body started working with life support. The lungs are working, the, the heart is working, but brain dead. No reaction. No reaction. Deepest possible coma. And this person, he was called in by the family, this, this shaman. And he went there and he felt the presence that the person, the subtle body is still there. Just unable to function but because the physical body is terribly damaged. The brain is damaged. And the consciousness is of course there. So he started, he held the hand of that person and he said, uh, I knew what I had to say, somehow it came out. He said, we are uh, walking together on a field of grass and blue skies above. And he's speaking to that person, no reaction. The family members and nurses are standing around, they say, what is he doing? And, and then, and he somehow those words kept coming to him. He said, uh, we, the, feel the grass under your feet, your bare feet and the flowers around you and so on. And then he said, you know, when you walk on grass, your feet have to move. Move your feet. And under the sheets, that man's feet began to move. Incredible. They are documented. So anyway, we are uh, getting diverted. But the thing is, asadrupam, consciousness is the reality in which mind appears. Just like a wave appears in water. Another implied point is given here. The consciousness itself uses this subtle body as an instrument. In fact, one of the names of the subtle body, the mind is antakkarana, inner instrument. External instrument, motor organs, sense organs, external instrument. Inner, internal instrument, the mind. Why are the eyes called external instrument? Because the sense organs go out and contact the external world. My eyes will experience the glass. The mind does not directly go out and experience the glass. The mind experiences the inputs from the eyes and the ears and the tongue and so on. So it's an internal organ. But remember, we are saying external organ and internal organ. The Sanskrit word is inter interesting. It's called karana, antakkarana. It does not mean organ. It means instrument. It means instrument. Eyes are one type of instrument. It's a system, a visual system. It's an instrument. It's a power, a capacity. And it's, today's word you would say it's an app. <laughs> it's an app. And downloaded from what Google Play or something. And this is from Cosmic. <laughs> from, from the Lord's apps, uh, app store. You have downloaded it. So it's an app for seeing. These are wonderful apps. For you can see, you can hear, you can taste. You can, you can speak, you can walk, you can talk. Uh, so all these things can be done. But these are apps. The one who is using the app is different from the app. Sometimes the apps work, sometimes the apps don't work. But the person who is using them is different from the apps. You, the consciousness, are the wielder. Consciousness is the user of these systems. They are instruments. The instrument and the user of this instrument cannot be one and the same. So you cannot be the subtle body. The subtle body is a set of apps. It's a very powerful set of apps. But you, you are not the set of apps. One just technical point I should add here. When you say consciousness is the user, um, I am not 
because Advaita Vedantin will immediately object. I am not attributing what technically would be called Kartritva. That means agency to consciousness. Just by the presence of consciousness, all these things happen. It's not that consciousness is like a little man sitting in the headquarters there and pressing switches and operating all this. No, no action is taking place. This is, there are some deep philosophical issues here. So I just want to clarify. Um, the problems will not be apparent to us. The problems will be very clearly apparent to the pundits. If I say consciousness is like a user of these instruments, uh, they'll say, does consciousness have kartritva and agency? And we in our innocence might say, okay, what's the problem? Then they will tear the entire system of Advaita down to pieces within two minutes, if you just admit that much only. So consciousness exists by itself, by its very presence, it shines forth and all these systems work. In Gita it is said, prakriti vakarmani kriyamanani sarvasha. Prakriti, nature, does everything. Everything, up to thinking, up to willing, all of that is done by nature. One who realizes oneself in this way, one realizes that this self is not a doer, is not an agent of action. In 13th chapter of Gita, this is the one verse in slightly different forms, it is repeated three times in Bhagavad Gita, 4th chapter, 13th chapter, 18th chapter. That everything is done by nature. You are the... Un, not doing witness, non-agent witness of all this. You're just consciousness there. I was just thinking, where is the difference between our understanding of modern science and this now? According to modern science, everything can be reduced to material action in this universe. Action of matter and energy. And this, this universe does everything. That's exactly what the Bhagavad Gita is saying. Everything is done by nature. We only take some of those functions upon ourselves and we say, clearly I am doing this, I am speaking. No, no, no. So, uh, anyway. So, you are the, the witness consciousness. In your presence, all these systems, the subtle body acts. How can you be the same as the subtle body? Already given seven arguments. Let's run through them again, very quickly. Ekam and Ekam, you are one, the subtle body has many parts, 17 parts or 19 parts, depending upon your classification. First argument. Second, Achalam Chalam, you are the unchanging, the uh, subtle body changes, uh, changes in one sense, that is the mind is fickle, so the mind changes very fast, that might be one way of looking at it, or the other way would be, it goes from body to body, it goes from life to life. Third, Drishyam, powerful argument. You are the knower, the witness, the seer, and the subtle body is so clearly seen. It's an object of knowledge. It's a thing, a very subtle thing, not a gross thing like this. Subtle thing, but a thing nevertheless. Fourth, vikari. The subtle body is nirvikara vikari. Subtle body is subject to increase or decrease, better or worse, sickness, health, energy, tiredness, and alertness, dullness. But you are the unchanging observer of this changing system. Um, fifth argument, Vyapakam Abhyapakam. There are times when you exist, subtle body does not exist, how can you be the same? In deep sleep, it's an experience, definitely an experience. But the subtle body is not there for you. 
then um, sixth argument, subtle body depends for its very existence and illumination on the consciousness, on you the consciousness. So satrupam asadrupam. You are sat consciousness, uh, subtle body is asat. Asat means here mithya, an appearance, name and form. And then finally, you are that which uses these instruments. The user and the used cannot be the same thing. These are instruments, subsystems, apps, and you are the person who is using that, the iPhone. So how can you be the same? Seven arguments, powerful arguments. Listen to them, understand them, and see that, yes, at the very least we should ask the question, now, perhaps I'm not the mind at this time. Lawyer will say, Shankaracharya will say, to you, I rest my case, your honor. Yeah. <laughs> Master lawyer. One more point. There's a little word here, single letter, cha, and, and. Now this and also has a meaning according to the commentator Vidyaranya. He says, by these arguments, we are not the causal body also. Remember, in Advaita Vedanta, we have a gross body, a subtle body, and there is something called a causal body. What is this causal body? We have already come across it. In deep sleep, if we do not experience the gross body, we are not experiencing the subtle body, what is it that we are experiencing? You will say nothing. It's an experience of blankness. It's an experience of deep rest. So what is that? That's, that's caused by the causal body. It is supposed to be a part of maya, this causal body. Another name for it in Sanskrit, it's called Karana Sharira. Another name, Anandamaya Kosha. So this is the causal body. And all these arguments can be used to show that we are not the causal body also. So subtle body I am not, causal body I am not. How can I be these ones? That is the argument. Now one more verse I must do because it brings the whole section to an end. What is the section? Showing that I am not the physical body, I am not the subtle body, I am not the causal body. This has been shown. We are bringing it to an end. Basically, if we just concentrate on the physical body and the subtle body, it's enough. Causal body is a philosophical necessity, but really what concerns us, physical body and the mind, subtle body. 40, verse number 40. He brings the matter to a close here. Evam deha dvayad anya, evam deha dvayad anya, atma purusha ishwaraha, atma purusha ishwaraha, sarvatma sarvarupascha, sarvatma sarvarupascha, sarvati toham abhyayaha, Sarvati toham Evam, in this manner. Which manner? What we have been doing up to the 40th verse. So what, we have, what have we accomplished till now? Deha dvayad anya. You are not, neither of these two bodies. The gross body and the subtle body. You are not these. This is what we have accomplished. And remember, why are we trying to accomplish this? Because Vedanta is trying to show us I am infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. And the biggest obstacle to that is, I'll say, no, I'm not. I am this person. If somebody points out to you, you are God, we tend to look back, who, me or somebody else? We are. <laughs> yeah. So, 
we have accomplished this that we are uh, we at least we begin to see that we may not be actually this physical body we not we are not limited to this physical body or subtle body we are something more than this so atma dehadvayadanya the self you are different from the body and the mind very powerful i mean this itself if you think about it here itself is liberation in fact the whole sankhya and yoga philosophy stops here only advaita will go further but sankhya yoga finished i am not the physical body i am not the universe not the physical body not the subtle body finished you are liberated kaivalya you think about it yes purushaha you this this being of consciousness then shankaracharya slightly mischievously suddenly introduces something tremendous this you not the physical body not the subtle body the consciousness witness of the physical body and subtle body you are ishwara god i will say where did it come from but suddenly you where did in hindi they say ye ishwar kahan se tapak pada <laughs> where is this god suddenly entered the, uh, the story there is no no sight of god suddenly god is here what is this god why did you suddenly say this think about it he says sarvatma if you are this consciousness distinguished from body and mind then everywhere there is the same consciousness distinguished from body and mind in him in her in everybody then this consciousness distinguished from our bodies and our minds how can it be many consciousnesses it must be the same consciousness all difference between us is of body and mind physical body and subtle body how can consciousness be different the consciousness in all of us must be one a sufi poet put it beautifully i and you are lattices in the in the lamp in which shines the one pure light through both of us you and i same light is shining through one light that pure consciousness advaita goes a little further if you look at in the in the scale of philosophies vishishta advaita and advaita this what the sufi poet is saying is vishishta advaita what advaita says you and i are not lattices this body and mind physical body and subtle body are the lattices in the in that lamp you and i we are that one pure light okay sarvatma so this one consciousness everywhere is god swami vivekananda said the only god i worship is the sum of all human souls the one consciousness behind all of us he swami ji says that's the only god i worship so this consciousness which you are apart from the body and mind this is god because it is sarvatma the soul of everybody the reality of everybody and see now i'm going to follow vidyaranya's commentary brilliant commentary one word each these words sarvatma sarvarupa sarvatito aham abhyaya brilliant commentary one after another whole of advaita sums up in two sentences i am the consciousness in all beings okay then objection then the beings are different right so the subtle body is different the, the the mind is different and you are something different called consciousness so how is there non duality there is plenty of duality here consciousness is there mind is there body is there university uh, the universe is there in includes universities also so all of it is there millions and billions of entities how is it non dual he says sarva rupascha 
All of those things also I am because they have no existence apart from the underlying consciousness. He will prove that later on. So I am all those things. Immediately the question arises, if you are all these, body, mind, the universe, then everything here is subject to change and death and suffering and destruction. Body gets sickness and dies. So you are all this. This ultimate reality becomes all this. So you are subject to sickness and death and destruction. Immediately he says, Sarvatita, I transcend all also. What does it mean? I am here. I am all of these. And yet I am none of these. How, how is that possible? There is a rope. We do not know as a rope. I see it as a snake. I say, oh, there's a snake there. You come and say, no, no, it's not a snake. It's a computer cable. Somebody threw it there. And the third person comes and says, no, it's a crack on the ground. It happened in the last Los Angeles earthquake. Now the crack in the ground, the computer cable and the snake, they are all in reality nothing but the rope itself. And the rope transcends all of them. Because the rope itself is appearing as a snake to me, as a computer cable to that person, as a crack in the ground to the other person. The rope, trans being all of them, it transcends all of them because they are not real. What is real is the rope itself. So similarly, all these forms, he says, you are that one consciousness which is appearing in the entire universe. So am I subject to change and destruction and death? No, because you transcend all of them. The problems of the crack on the ground, the computer cable and the rope and the snake, they do not apply to the rope because they do not really exist in the rope. So it is transcendent, every, everything transcendent. Look at the brilliance of, of, uh, of uh, Vidyaranya. So you transcend everything. Immediately he asks the question, if you transcend everything, you are unknowable. That's, this is where Kant stopped. The thing in itself cannot be known. Kant, Immanuel Kant stopped here. Look at the answer. He says, if you transcend everything, if the ultimate reality is beyond everything, not this, none of this, you are unknowable then. It's beyond our knowledge. Aham. Oh, it's very much knowable. It's you. It is that which is saying I, I, I in your mind right now. It is knowable as the correct meaning of the word, of the term I. Incorrect meaning, body and mind. Correct meaning, pure consciousness. It is immediately knowable to you right now. You are the transcendent reality. Immediately the objection comes. I, so it's the ego. So are you saying uh, the ego is everything, non-dual reality, Brahman? The changing reality? The ego is subject to change. It comes and goes. It gets attached to so many things. I am this body, I am this mind, I am happy, I am sad, I am sick, I am healthy. He says, avyayaha, unchanging. Ego is changing. So ego cannot be this I, the real I. Shankaracharya sings, I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the memory, I am not the ego. Literally, if you translate that, it will be, I am not I. How contradictory. I am not I. What am I? There with the Aranya ends. That I am not the ego, I am the witness of the ego. Beautifully, if you want to precisely locate where, where will you find the Atman? The witness of the ego. Just now, say to yourself, I. Who or what is watching that I? In what light do you experience the feeling I? You will not be able to answer. If you answer, you will say, oh, in Brahman, Satchidananda. That's an answer. 
Not bad, you will get marks in a Vedanta examination. But if you don't answer, if you stay with the question, let the question dig deeper into you, then something else entirely will happen. So, aham abhyaya. Brilliant commentary. It's unfortunately in Sanskrit, not translated. Vidyaranya Swami, 700 years ago. Just this series of uh, terms, Ishwara, God, Sarvatma, the soul of everybody, Sarvarupascha, all, everybody also, all those day bodies and subtle bodies and everything, all of that, Sarvatita, transcending all, yet I, yet not the ego, the unchanging. Okay, we have time for a couple of questions. There's a question, question in the back. Just wait for the microphone. Uh, yeah, so uh, if probably even if you take the uh, subtlest of the subtle bodies, probably that's how far maybe uh, Kant identified himself with the subtlest body. Maybe he couldn't go further. Uh, it it feels like you need it needs to start from an experience. Like when you're using language, yes, uh, you can you can only point to something and somebody needs to have experienced it. Yes. And then he recognizes it. Yes. And that way it seems kind of arbitrary. Some people have been gifted with the experience. Some people, like, it, it's kind of clear that you can be really smart, as smart as Kant, mm. and still just through the intellect, you can't get there unless there is an experience. Absolutely. Very good question, very good uh, comment. Now, here I want to say two things. The experience is not arbitrary. This is the beautiful thing about it. Advaita Vedanta insists we all have the experience. When? All the time. When are you not you? When do you take a vacation from yourself? Never. You, the real you, are always the real you. In that case, you are always experiencing the real you. All it needs is pointing out. And that pointing out is what Vedanta does. You'll see, if it only were so simple, it's true, if it only were so simple, that's where all the other sadhanas come in. But it's true. It's not an arbitrary that some people have got the experience and some are not. Everybody has got that experience. But what we need is to be pointed out. That's enlightenment. Enlightenment does not create something new. It reveals what is already there. Okay, good. Oh, and yeah, both these are the two things I wanted to say that experience everybody has and Vedanta reveals that experience to us. Yes, there's a question there. Maybe I missed this. I must not, if, if it is possible, know I, then isn't there, how, how is the difference between the knower and the known resolved then? Yes. So I said knower and the known must be different. Then if I'm trying to know myself, I, then I become the knower of myself, then knower and known, I will be different from myself. This is the question. Okay. Now, the knower and the known are different when? All the time. Except in one case. You see, all knowing is knowing an object. Think about it. Whatever you know in the world, 
you know it as a known object. The subject can never be the object, according to Advaita Vedanta. So the I, therefore, when I say knowing the I, who am I really? I can never know myself as an object. In that sense, the knower can never become the known. In that sense, it is completely beyond knowledge. And yet, because the knower is always continuously revealed in every action of seeing, in every action of knowing, so the knower is always revealed also, but never as an object of knowing. It's always revealed as the eternal knower. That is what Vedanta is pointing out. There's only one case, in the knower's case, where you will get knowledge, but that knowledge is not knowledge of an object. That's why so many, you will find so many Sanskrit terms, aprameyam, not the object of, um, of an instrument of knowledge. It cannot be seen through senses, it cannot be inferred through inference, it cannot be known through. So in, in, in all different objects of knowledge, they have their objects. The I, the real subject, never becomes um, an object of knowledge. So to answer your question, that problem will not apply to self-knowledge. Because in self-knowledge, we do not know the self as an object. It will not become, it will not fall, fall prey to the drashta drishya difference. Otherwise, I will not be I then. It will become different from me. So the self-knowledge is of a different kind than uh, knowledge of, of the world or even of the body or of the mind. That's why Mundakopanishad Paravidya and Aparavidya. Paravidya, transcendent knowledge. Aparavidya, empirical knowledge or relative knowledge. Relative knowledge is knowledge of object. Paravidya, knowledge of subject. That's why it's an entirely different kind of knowledge. They have separated the two. Question. Just following on that point, does it imply that um, we start with that experience to know ourselves and then we lose it over time, that we have to come back to it? Because the only way to know it is to experience it. So is it the case that that's like the starting point and then through life slowly we lose touch with it and... oh. Um, so a question would be, when did we, did we ever know ourselves as we are, as the Atman, as Brahman, and have we forgotten it and we are just, we are being reminded? In Advaita Vedanta, we don't say that. We say that uh, we are in ignorance of our true self. So when are we in ignorance of, so how did this ignorance start? It didn't start in this life. It, it was in the past life, in the lives before that. So when did it first start? There is no beginning to this ignorance. Ignorance, they say, ajnana is anadi, without beginning. But it has an end. When we get knowledge, ignorance comes to an end. So it's not that we knew at some time, then we forgot. We never did know, but we can know through Vedanta. You will say, this is, uh, you're maneuvering this, you're trying to avoid the question. That's not true. The Professor J.N. Mahanti is a very well-known philosopher. He pointed out something very interesting. Every ignorance is beginningless. I'll explain that. Every ignorance is beginningless. Suppose I ask you, do you know Russian? Yeah. Do you know Russian? Yeah. No. So, so since when do you not know Russian? Yeah. You'll say that, oh, well, from my very birth. So before your birth, you knew Russian? No. You will, then you will see that I never knew Russian. But you can know Russian. The moment you start studying Russian, you'll know Russian. 
So ignorance of Russian is beginningless, but knowledge of Russian will come and end that ignorance. Ignorance of our true self is beginningless, anadi. And it can come to an end when enlightenment, enlightening knowledge comes, Brahma Jnana comes, or Atma Jnana comes. Yes. There's a question here. Radha Krishnan ji. Just wait. Wait for the microphone. Does the establishment in self-knowledge happen suddenly or does it happen over a period of time? Since I know who the question is coming from, <laughs> I know the depth of the question and there is an enormous literature in Advaita Vedanta about it. But yes, Jivan Mukti Viveka is in, in fact a book by Vidyarnya Swami. The whole book is about this question. Does it happen in an instant or does it take a long period of time? The destruction of ignorance about the self happens in an instant. The moment you get that enlightening flash of knowledge, I am Brahman. Not in the class. Not because of the book. It must happen within. An intuitive flash which comes after hearing this, after thinking about it and after meditating about it. It, it will happen in a flash, it becomes clear. The, the leaves, the plant on the surface of the lake, you remove it and the sparkling water underneath becomes clear. You see it. Actually, it, it becomes very clear. That happens in an instant. Sri Ramakrishna says, the darkness of a thousand years in a room, suppose, which has been locked for a thousand years, the darkness of a thousand years goes away in a flash when you light one candle, one matchstick there. How long does that light? Oh, this room has been in darkness for centuries, so it will take a little time to light up. Lights don't work too well here, it will take some time, so much darkness. No, it will go away in a flash, the moment you turn on a light. In the same way, when the light of self-knowledge dawns, the beginningless ignorance goes away in a flash. But, as I said at the beginning, those leaves will dance back again and cover the pond, the water of the pond. What are those leaves? That's the mind. We need the help of the mind for any kind of knowledge, including Atma Jnana. Again, a lot of literature is there. To what extent is the mind necessary for self-knowledge and to what extent the mind cannot help you in self-knowledge. But to some extent, the mind is necessary for self-knowledge. And the problem with the mind is, it will immediately send up again. The ego will come up and thoughts will come up and desires will come up and they tend to cover up the light of pure consciousness which you are. The light is still there. The mind comes and covers it up. Nothing has happened to the light. Even the mind is revealed by the same light. When the clouds, we say clouds have covered the sun. Shankaracharya's disciple, Hastamalaka, says, the fool says, Clouds have covered the sun. The clouds have only obstructed your vision of the sun. How can a little bit of cloud cover the huge sun? No, just obstructs your vision. The sun is there absolutely as it was. You, as pure consciousness, remain as you were, but the mind tends to lose sight of that. So, establishing the mind in the knowledge which you have, that takes time. So that... Nididhyasana, there is a term called Jnana Nishtha. Establishing yourself in the knowledge which you have already got. 
until you do that if you are fully established in that knowledge then you are called a jivan mukta free while living but the flash of enlightenment will not automatically make us a jivan mukta free while living unless you shankaracharya will say that uh, you have to drown the mind in self knowledge when again and again and again and again till it is suffused by the aroma of that knowledge he will say how do you do that it will come 15 techniques shankaracharya will give you 15 techniques towards the end of this book now don't jump ahead all this theory i don't need so why didn't you tell me earlier so many classes it will not work without this teaching first listen understand then only meditate 15 techniques of meditation of drowning the mind in the knowledge that you gained here 15 techniques will be told soon that is the development that that is that grows definitely so that's the answer yes niridhyasana yes there's a question there last one we are almost run out of time uh swamiji uh the the um statement that the object and the subject can never be the same has been made several times yes and i i i'd like some clarification on that i don't know if you can briefly say it seems like the subject uh could be the object at the same time that i could know the i but you're saying that it can't and i understand it in theory but understanding it in a deeper sense not so much <laughs> yeah i'm really glad you asked this question we have done all this almost on the basis of one central argument subject and object are different knower and known are different seer and seen are different you the consciousness you are different from body and mind just now what did we do 40 verses i am not the body i am not the mind i am separate from the body and mind right and yet well, there is a reason why i stopped here you know what he will do in the 41st verse next verse a new topic is starting he will say wait for it a tremendous bombshell he will say everything that we have done till now seems clear yes completely wrong <laughs> the subject and the object are not different you the seer are not different from what you see he will come to that that's the 40th 41st verse he will come to that he will say all that you have done till now very clear oh wonderful shankaracharya thank you very much this is all is load of foolishness why then why did he do it he will say why is it foolishness why is it wrong we'll be up in arms we have fully convinced us seven arguments you gave here and so many arguments before this we are ready we will use those arguments against you now if you try to prove subject and object are same we will use those arguments he says all of this was done to isolate the spiritual reality within you apart from name and form you see there's no time here but i'll i'll just give you the hint otherwise i'll leave you in expectation two things can be different in two different ways this glass and the cover of the glass are different they're two different things how do you know it can exist separately this can exist separately this is different from this correct and another kind of difference is this table is different from the wood this table is different from the wood which constitutes it in what sense that difference is that they not that there is a thing called table and there is a thing called wood you cannot show them separately that difference is brought to us 
to make us appreciate that the table is not the reality, the inner substance is the wood. Once you realize that, next you will see there is no separate thing called table. It's just the wood, a name and form given to the wood. In the same way, once you get, we get the idea, the feeling for what can be pure consciousness, existence, bliss. Next moment, now Shankaracharya will say, everything that you separated, name and form, the universe, body, breath, subtle body with its 17 parts and whatnot, all of that is nothing but name and form. The reality is that consciousness only. They are not separate from you. You are this universe. He will come and he will prove. This will go on for a long time, up to the 90th verse. Next, 50 verses. That it, it's easier to prove, not very difficult to prove you are pure consciousness, witness of body and mind. But to prove that you are the universe which you are experiencing. That's a huge task. At this point, yoga and Sankhya will say, Tata, bye-bye. We are not going to work this, this, this craziness. I'm not going to be your partner in this craziness. We stop here. Advaita walks further. It says, you are this universe. So that journey lies ahead of us now. After that, meditation techniques and all will come. Thank you very much. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu